Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Views on View. This week on our panel, we have Chris Fritz from the View Core team. Hello, hello. Eric Hanchett, author of Vue.js in Action from Manning. Howdy. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that is Damien Dulish. Well, hello. Dzień Hey, folks, I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS, and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just, I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back end without having to actually program the back end, then give them a try. Go check them out at netlify.com. Do you want to just give us a brief introduction, who you are, why you're world famous, all that good stuff? I wouldn't say I'm world famous. It's more like developer famous. And that's also like a long stretch, <laughs> uh, which is kind of useful because like once you walk away from the conference. Nobody knows you, so like you're free to roam the streets. I'm Damien, uh, I'm from Poland, and I've been, uh, I'm uh, also a core team member, Vue.js, and I got there uh, a while ago, probably through the involvement of the, in the first international Vue conference, which was here in Wrocław, Poland. Uh, I've also been doing the Vue newsletter, which later became the official newsletter, and also got a podcast, which you can listen to at the news.vuejs.org. Other than that, I've been trying my um, my best at uh, doing some open source work, uh, which includes probably my same most famous library, and also the firstborn, which was the which is still the Vue multi-select library, which is kind of like a select, multiple select and search, uh, searchable form element, which turns out to be a very common use case among web apps. Uh, I've also created some uh, other libraries. Uh, one is the Validate library, which proposes a different approach to handling validations instead of putting them into templates. You just declare those on the component, uh, as in within the component scripts. Uh, so that the validation rules uh, have to match uh, or map to the data structure. So you can basically validate everything, including uh, what you have in your data, but also computer properties, uh, getters, whatever you want. Uh, and also recently, uh, well, not so recently, like I think last year, along with Eduardo, also known as POSFA, we created the view global events library, which is like a micro library. And all it does is just make it possible to attach uh, listeners to the window or document object. But you can do it the same way as you do with events on the, in the DOM. So you can use the template part of the component to say, do like add click uh, dot control. And then you have, uh, because you can use modifiers and whatever 
uh, there is possible uh, through the template compiler with Vue. So you, you can like harness the power of the modifiers to to do the event listening. And I think I just like went through the whole story and there isn't anything else to talk about. Yeah, cool. but that, that's me. The Vue Global Events is probably the, the least well-known of your libraries. Oh, yeah. Uh, but that's one that until I saw it, I never even realized like, oh yeah, that's super useful. And yeah. uh, since then I've used that on like a number of projects for it, sort of global shortcuts. So when I want, you know, when this component is rendered, when someone presses uh, command P, I want this thing to happen. And that's, yep. that's really, really useful. And the fun part is it's like 16 lines of code. So it's like very, very simple. And you could just write it in your own applications, which is basically how it started. And also the good thing is you can toggle between the events if you do like an VIF on the in the component, so the global events component. So if you want to like have different sets of like global listeners, you can just do like an V if v uh, else if or uh, v else set of like combination of those components with different listeners, different handlers. So it's quite easy to to, to manage this way instead of like doing uh, all the things uh, like manually. So I'm pretty happy about it. And the best part is that it's so simple. There aren't like many issues. So that's the best part of like probably my most favorite library because there is like no maintenance cost. Damien, can you go over that one more time? Why would you want to put something on the event global listener? Why would you want to do that? Well, uh, for example, if you have, if you want to have some like global shortcuts, uh, for example, if you would like to handle like command Z, like to undo something and your application is supporting this or like some other shortcuts, the use case that we had was in an Electron application. And although you can use the, like electron um, shortcuts module, uh, you can't easily like turn them on and off. So we had like this uh, results tree, and we wanted to be able to traverse through the tree uh, with your arrows, and then like with different keys, uh, you could like uh, trigger different actions. So for that, we just uh, enabled the global events component, mapped all these keys like. When you hold a shift and an arrow, then it's just like pops on the right part of the application, right? And you, you're not concerned about like your focus. Like you don't have to keep focus on those elements. It's just like a global shortcut, like with command W to like close a window. Uh, you could do something like this in your app with like, yeah, shift W or something like this. Interesting. So, yeah, I've never had that use case, but that sounds interesting moving it over. Yeah, also. Uh, it supports uh, like scrolling, so you can do like window on scroll, and you be, you can basically do the same with uh, plugin or the component, which is like handling it. And you, then you can also do some modifiers like passive mode and so on and so on. So it's kind of useful and still learning how you can like utilize it. Yeah, you can use all of like basically it. It doesn't allow you to do anything that you wouldn't be able to do without that library, right? It's just like convenient, so you can use like Vion and you know all of its modifiers, all of the power of Vion and the convenience. And that, that was basically the premise because before that we had like this very long, I think like 100 lines of like a meta handler on uh, well, even handler on the window. 
And then we had like, we were checking like whether this was the arrow left or arrow right, then arrow top, arrow bottom, and so on and so on, like tons of conditionals that were then like pointing to different handlers. And we were just, were able to extract it into like just separate handlers and the whole logic, which was responsible for like figuring out whether you had some key combinations pressed could be moved to the template. Just as you have with your like inputs in view, where you just want to like uh, use your like shortcuts or like arrows to like browse through a list uh, of elements that are like showing up in a like a selection library, which I also created. It was fun to do. Like uh, probably one of my most exciting uh, days as an open source developer, where I like showed this to Evan on the Slack channel back then. And it was like, whoa, that's smart. And I was like, wow. Like that was the one of the be- better compliments that I even, even received like at some point, uh, especially coming from Evan at the time. So, oh yeah, I know I'm bragging, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. So you've, you've been giving a, a talk recently at some events about view multi-select specifically and of a lot of the lessons that you've learned maintaining this component library that's used by like lots and lots of developers. Like how many downloads are, are you getting for that component per week on NPM? I think last time I checked, was it like around 40,000 downloads? Maybe maybe around 50, I'm not sure, would have to check. So it's quite a lot. It obviously has like good sides and bad sides. Like I'm very happy that people find it useful. I'm very unhappy that people find bugs in it. <laughs> it's kind of like depressing when like w- whenever you wake up you have like three more issues or comments to existing issues so it's so hard to like wrap my head uh, around it so if someone who i considers doing some open source work like contributions maintenance and so, and so on would like to join then i'm very happy to welcome someone on board that could just like help me manage it because as you mentioned in the talk it ends up with the um, premise for a new version which is the treat version uh, which is like a complete rewrite and as much as i would like to continue working on it i just have, uh, have this like guilty feeling that whenever i work on it i don't have the time to uh, work on the issues and whenever I work on the issues, I just end up so burned that I don't have the time to go on the code. So it's like, I'm kind of being stuck there, but hopefully um, like the preparations for the recent talk last week in Amsterdam, like it's over. So I should be able to like get some work done before before the ViewConf US conference. Are you going to be at uh, ViewConf US doing a talk? Uh, not doing a talk, uh, but doing a workshop with Ben Kong on the uh, creating uh, reusable components. But the workshop is not just about components, uh, also more about refactoring, because you can't really talk about building reusable stuff if you don't talk about architecture and uh, basically how to refactor existing code into like this more like reusable architecture, like how to cons- create like modules. More like how to extract some responsibilities from existing components, bigger components into smaller ones so that you can like mix them up together. Not using mixins, but a figure of speech, like mix those components together, compose them into something that is uh, more reusable, easier to maintain and just like built upon. So that's the like, 
the whole premise of the workshop. Definitely want to see those slides though <laughs> when you oh, after the uh, conference is over. <laughs> sure, happy to happy to share those. There's even a recording live, right? Is there a recording live of the workshop? Oh my god, that Oh, not of the workshop, of uh, the talk. Oh, yeah, there was the recording of the talk. Uh, I would say I would recommend you to watch it, but I haven't watched it, as I already stated, because I can't stand my voice. I watched uh, it. It was about 24 minutes long, and it was it was actually really good. Made me think about how I architect things beyond okay. just, you know, view apps, too. Oh, that's happy to hear. Yeah, yeah, I, I watched it, too, and I also enjoyed it. In my memory, it was more like a blur. So I just like remember parts of it, but I'm glad if you, if you enjoyed the whole thing. So yeah, I just remember like people clapping in the other room where there was a different talk. So that, that was my highlight of the talk because then I said like, <laughs> oh, apparently the other speaker is better. And it was like this pressure release moment where people were laughing and actually it helps a lot when you're speaking. So... So you're taking the video and, and talk that you gave and creating a workshop out of it. So it'll be more in-depth and you'll be working mm, with more people. Well, the talk was more about like lessons learned when building uh, uh, like totally reusable components, but, uh, component, but for like open source. And this case is, and I, I think there, there's a quote by uh, Chris. Uh, could you, do you remember the quote that you gave me back then? Oh, the quote that's in your slides? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, I don't remember. I, I've said a lot of things. I mean, I could. I don't remember I most of them. Give the quote, but it's kind of weird to quote you if you could just say it like in your voice, and because I can't really do, do your voice. So okay, but, you know what? I'll look it up and I'll say it later. But in the meantime, okay. something I'd be really curious about is yep. here are some of the the tips that you would give other people maintaining open source component libraries, whether it's using Vue or not. Because, like Chuck said, I think. A lot of the tips that you give really apply to like any kind of component library and, and to some extent, like any kind of open source library. There is one tip that I think uh, like basically sums it up. Like the short version is just don't do features. And the long version is make it so that people can build the features on top of your library instead of like implementing everything yourself. Because then you, at least to some extent, you keep your library simple, like more manageable or, or maintainable, but it also makes uh, the contributions easier. Whereas if you try to be the good guy and like someone is like, it would be great if your multi-select also supports groups. And then you like, oh yeah, I, I would like to do, like implement it and you add it. And then like you're stuck with it for the uh, like next year or like two years because it added so much overhead to everything, uh, whereas it's just like very hard to refactor it in a way so that like you can keep the feature, but you also make it like more flexible. Because the more features you add, it just gets less and less flexible. Because like every other use case requires you to think about how it coexists, uh, how it works together with the existing features, and it just turns out like with because there are like around 40 props, so 40 configuration options, and you can like do a, a multiply each of those combinations. Like it ends up with like hundreds of different use cases, configuration com combinations. So just don't add features. Just try to make it so that someone can like, uh, and usually using scoped slots, just like replace parts of your 
component and like pass their own logic, pass their own elements there and build on top of it instead of like just trying to, uh, to solve everything for everyone. Because, and Chris, now is the time for your quote. Have you found it? No, not yet. <laughs> um, okay, so maybe we should wait for the quote or maybe I can just like uh, do my own interpretation of the quote, like how I remember it. Yeah, that, that works. Okay, You'll probably so, say it better than I did anyway. Okay, so the quote went something like this. Building an open source application is like building an application for the biggest client possible because every possible use case eventually shows up uh, at some point. So that's like goes to how difficult it is to create a maintainable open source application because everyone I've heard of that's had some success creating a really useful, unique open source application has noticed later on that maintaining it, going through the pull requests, like you said, you don't want to have a bunch of features and, and a bunch of extra stuff that now you have to add in because a bunch of people are asking for it. I mean, it becomes a pretty difficult proposition. And for one person that probably has three or four other open source projects and also maybe a full-time freelancer or full-time uh, nine-to-five job, it, that's difficult. So yeah, getting more people involved, getting more people to make those decisions, I think that's great. Hopefully someone listening right now can step up and help you out with I completely agree. Uh, like just for once, not, not being the bad guy that is saying no, like we won't be adding the support for like a jQuery validation library. And I had this once. So yeah, I would, I could use that. Like uh, right now I'm kind of getting like quite insensitive and just like saying, no, this won't be implemented because I were already like gray, grow quite uh, worried that it's so important to just, just to be able to say no. And I think that's uh, why uh, I can't imagine like if Vue, uh, like if the Vue team were like accepting all the feature requests, like, hey, it would be cool to have this. If the framework would ever go this way without this like being curated to only include the essentials and just leave the, uh, like, leave the way open for people to like create something in the user end. Like if it wasn't this way, the framework wouldn't be so easy to use and like migrate when like when the migration from the version one to version two happened. Like without it, without this creation of what features make sense in the core, it would just be like a complete mess. And that's how I feel about my component, which I'm still happy people uh, use, but I'm not very happy about how it it works internally. And this is uh, that, that's why I try to break it up and like hopefully I can like make it before the view, the treat version of view. Or maybe that's I, one thing Evan and you have a common, right? You guys want to keep like just with view. You guys want to keep it very succinct. You don't want to add in a bunch of features. You want to be very, very careful of any new RFCs that come up and things that people want to implement and want to add it has to be well thought out with, you know, Chris and you and, and everyone deciding what's, what's best. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, is that I see it, I can imagine somebody getting on the view CLI after they've added in all the things that have you know gotten any kind of traction whatsoever in the issues on view or on this library, right? And so then you use the view CLI to set it up, and instead of it taking a few minutes to kind of you know get what you need, <laughs> it, it's asking you questions an hour later because it has to account for all of the things that everybody asked for it to be added in, and so it's it, they're not just keeping it out because well, I have to maintain this thing. They're keeping it out because nobody's going to want to use it once it gets bogged down with all this other stuff. 
Yeah, it's probably the best way to just like uh, the best option would be just to get into the like sweet spot somewhere where it has like enough features that people just like oh yeah, this is solving my problems, mm-hmm. but also not that many features where like reading the the documentation is just like very hard like how to make sense of the stuff like there are so many co- like configuration options that i have to set up to make it work so yeah i kind of agree and this is probably the difference where evan i think uh, and the core team were able to succeed and i was i failed uh, a bit at some point but i think it also resulted from the fact that i uh, when the library started it was uh, view 1.x and there wasn't um, scoped slots by, back then, I think. Uh, correct me if I'm uh, wrong, Chris. I think the scoped slots came... Oh, when did they came? Oh, I, I, it was a two-point... It, it wasn't a minor version. I don't remember the exact one. It might have been 2.4 or something. Yes. So back then, like I had to do some very... like It, it was much harder to actually create uh, open source components for Vue because... Like if you would like wanted to have like custom template for for your like option list, you had to like create a component, sorry, like create a template tag somewhere that you can then reference and then would be used. So it was kind of like scoped slots, but it was kind of dirty. So that changed later on. And I think now knowing the whole power on the view uh, scoped slots and what you can do with it, and that was like my recent talk. I was mostly focusing on like harnessing the power of those. Like knowing all this, the component would look completely different. So if someone is like getting inspired to create like an maybe not a drop down or select component, but like a different component, like just don't get inspired by my component too much because you it might like lead you in the wrong direction where yeah. It would probably be better to to uh, like take a step a few step back and try to rethink how we can do it in more like a flexible way, which is most uh, likely using um, scope slots where and probably multiple components that can be replaced by like custom components, which will, for example, implement the like a very specific uh, part of the components for. So, for example, th- this is how the new architecture for the treat version looks like where the multi-select component is broken into broken into several pieces like the options list the value the input and there is this renderless component uh, which is the core which is like connecting it all together can you define what a renderless component is for people well, who might not renderless component is a component which doesn't render anything uh, so the, the main idea of those components is that you can still have like state and like methods that change the state, like computed properties in it, but it's not like opinionated on how it looks, like why it shows. Instead, it exposes, um, well, it can even expose the whole state, computed properties and methods uh, through its scope slot. So then when another component is using this renderless component, it can just take everything from it and wire it together with its own template. Uh, so it's kind of like a provider where I'm providing the logic. And there is this new component which builds on top of it, providing its own template, its own 
elements and it just like takes whatever it needs from the renderless component, wires it together with, with its own element, like state uh, and methods, and it just like works together. So that's the premise of the treat version where there's the renderless component. There are the smaller components responsible for parts of the component. And there is also the default composition, which is basically the renderless component uh, connected with all of those default smaller components in a way that it mimics the current uh, API of the uh, second version of ViewMultiSelect so that like when someone would like to migrate to the new uh, the treat version, it should be quite smooth because the API of the composition, uh, well, I hope will be uh, very similar or mostly the same, even if the underneath implementation is split in, into like smaller components and the renderless core. So that's the main, main idea with uh, the next version. But right now I'm stuck on grouping because it makes it so much harder to, to actually be able to extract. Uh, because the question now is how much of the logic should stay in the core and how much is, could it be pushed into the smaller components so that if someone would like to, for example, change the list, which is just like a flat list of elements that you can navigate with your arrows, and you would like to have like a tree view there, like how to make it so that you can replace it with something completely different so that the renderless element won't get in uh, your way. So it, it won't be opinionated. So there are still like lots of tough decisions to be made there. Mm-hmm. But I think like I'm trying to like I'm trying to get there and I hope at some point I will. So yeah, that's that's the, the hard part. Something that you mentioned that I'd like to go into more is I'd love to explore maybe with a a specific example, that lesson that, that you talked about, which I think is, is a really, really good lesson about not building features and about how features can quickly increase complexity. And the alternative you talked about using features like scope slots, let's say in your view multi-select, if you are rendering your own template and you're like making everything look good for people and you're including some, some base styles, like I imagine at, at some point, you know, people start asking you, Oh, can we like have different themes? And yeah, then yeah. they want also want like different layouts. And it's like sometimes we want an icon before it, and sometimes we want an icon after it, and sometimes we want like icons inside of uh, you know the the little tags. And sometimes you know we want them to show up as tags, or sometimes we want them to show up as like you know buttons or something like that. And you you start you know accommodating all these different ways of visualizing the multi-select idea. Is that generally what you've run into? Well, this is something that I think is already fixed uh, because of scoped slots. So right now, there are like more than 10 different slots uh, for different par- parts of the component where so you can like replace how the option look like, how the tags, like the pixels where the selection is uh, shown, like how they look like. So you can like put images there, icons. There are like slots for like before the list, after the list, uh, for the small like... Uh, um, icon that like opens or closes the component. So there are like multiple slots, but this isn't uh, like yet. It doesn't um, like it still has to fit into the default um, CSS rules. Although uh, the CSS uh, is extracted, so you can like basically override it with your own. And I think someone already created like a bootstrap version of the CSS where you can just like 
replace the default ones with the bootstrap version and it will look like a, like a bootstrap component as an uh, visually but there is like a no no not no official support for this so i think i still don't really have an idea how to make it officially distribute like different sets of styles to 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 make it possible i think this wouldn't be um that much of a problem with the next version because then i hope and this is probably just me hoping uh, i don't know whether this will be actually happening is that um people w- should be able to create like plugins or more like components which are like uh, dependent on, on the multi-select or create their own compositions with uh, like set of new features that they could uh, like share as their own libraries hopefully and by that uh, and through this i also hope to uh, limit the amount of features or maybe get rid of some that i think that could be easily implemented in the user land uh, i'm not sure whether this is the answer to your questions chris oh yeah yeah it does it does answer the question so in version three you're sort of fixing the problem by allowing people to provide and fully control their ui so that you're yes. really focusing 100 on the problem of like a multi-select component no matter what the ui might look like whether it's in the form of like an input with like little boxes in it or anything else yes i even have uh, like an example in the new documentation which is basically it, there isn't like a drop down part there is only the input and there is like a table underneath it uh, where you can navigate with your arrows like uh, highlight different rows and when you press enter the row goes from the left side to the right side where the results are uh, so it doesn't really look like a uh, like a select thing uh, it's just like an input and two tables where you're moving like uh, elements from one side to the other one so that's basically the whole idea like you said being able to provide your own interface to to the functionality where at this point it doesn't really have to resemble the uh, multi-selection library but it, it could be like anything at this point like i imagine like having like a list of selected users to join a channel and so on so the idea was strongly inspired by downshift uh, which is a library for um, react which kind of like does the same whereas it doesn't provide any of the inter or like user interface elements just the bare logic that you can then use for to build your own stuff this episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. And in your talk, you talk about you know downshift and React Select, 
being on like two opposite sides of a continuum where a downshift is like 100% flexible, but leaves a lot to the user. So like if they just want like a multi-select that basically looks good, they have to invent all of the styles themselves, right? Yep. But with React Select, like you get something that basically looks good, but then it's like, it's really complex and it, it has like so many features. Yeah, and it's also very flexible, but because I haven't used it, like I just like checked the documentations, seen all like most of it, like how you can configure it. I assume it's like super powerful, but at the same time, you have to learn a lot, like how to use it efficiently. So it's like you said, like there is like a spectrum where one it's like every use case uh, is like handled or the library author tries to handle all the use cases on one end. And on the other end, it's you just get this those elements which are like super flexible, but you have to handle all those use cases, all those edge cases. So during the presentation, what I asked uh, the audience was like, where do you think is the best spot to be on the spectrum? And it was supposed to be a joke, but uh, well, I'm not that good with jokes, at least not the, the <laughs> ones that are prepared, like these never, those never work. So I have to like improvise to at least have some fun at the, at the, on the stage. So the question was like, where do you think it's best to be on the spectrum? And I was suggesting like, hey, maybe in the middle. And like, I just hope like the audience will be, yeah, in the middle is the best, but actually it's not because then you don't have this like ready to use strength of like the React select. And then you also don't have the flexibility from the, like being on the other edge of the, of the spectrum where like you can build everything on top of it. So it's basically how the view multi-select is right now. Like it doesn't offer like complete flexibility but it also doesn't cover like all those use cases, like just hundreds or thousands of different use cases. So what so you say you get the worst of both worlds? You're not covering all the use cases and you're still complex? And not flexible, yeah. So uh, the answer that I gave during the talk is like trying to bend the spectrum into like a circle where you end up being on like on the both sides of the spectrum. And this is like what I, uh, what I explained. So you have the renderless core where it gives you the whole flexibility and you can like use it instead of the default composition and be, hopefully just like build anything on it, on top of it. But uh, the library also ships uh, with the default composition, which is kind of like a prepared ready to use component, which like gives you lots of the features that are already there. Probably some more would be possible. So it kind of gives you this, like, I just want to use it. Like I have a quite common problem that I want to solve. Just drop it, drop the default composition, like make some small adjustments uh, and it works. But then I have yeah. like this. And especially when you're prototyping, like that's what you want. You, you want it to just drop it in just so you can like see it working and play around. Yeah, but if you reach the point where, oh my God, like this just gets out of hand, like I have to do some hacks, you can just move the, uh, like stop using default composition and just use the render score. And also there is this like thing in between which uh, I'm trying to accomplish with the uh, next version is that you are able to just replace parts of it. So if you, for example, like the input and the values, like this is fine, like those work for you. You just need to change how the options list look like and behaves you're able just to replace the, the list from the whole list component 
from the default composition and just like wire it again um, with the core uh, so that it's even if you opt for like building a, like a new component on top of the renderless uh, component, you're still able to use some of the existing uh, like fragments components if they've like uh, solved the problem. Like you don't have to, like if you decide to like write it from scratch, you don't really have to write everything from scratch. You can just like pick the pieces that work for you and like write the, the other part that is not covered by the, by the elements that are provided. Uh, does it make sense? Like how I'm describing it because that makes sense to me, but we've also talked about this quite a bit already. Yeah, uh, Eric and Chuck, might... how are you feeling? Yeah, yeah, I think it makes sense. It's a little abstract, but I think I think I get it. I hope that like once it ships, like people would just like stick uh, probably most of the time with the uh, default composition and only those that were like super into like creating something very, very complicated or have like a very specific issue, they will just like dig deeper into this like very advanced use cases. So I, I still want to like keep it very easy to use. Uh, like Chris said, like just drop it in and you can make use of it. So I hope whatever I'm describing here won't be needed for like 99% of the use cases or 95%. So And yeah. for people who are sitting at home and thinking like, gosh, I, I'd really love to see an example of what this looks like, is there a link to you know that we could drop in the show notes for people, you know, so they could see what this what this pattern looks like? Um, yes. Um, so the thing is, you can go to the repo, and there is the uh, V3 branch, uh, which you can run uh, locally and see how it works for you. Like most of my migration is already done. I'm still like moving things around between the core uh, and some of those like leaf elements. But it's already working, except for grouping, which is still very problematic. And I'm even considering like just removing the support from for groups uh, altogether. Well, not sure. Like I mean, just make it so that someone can just uh, implement it on top of the renderless core, uh, so that the renderless core doesn't really care about the um, about whether the options list is like in groups or not, like. Because it doesn't really, except for searching. And this is like one of the biggest issues. So yeah, the, the, it would be the, um, maybe I could try to create a, a, like a preview deploy somewhere for of the documentation because the documentation is already halfway migrated with like trying to uh, replicate all the uh, examples that are can be found in the existing documentation. So the, the, the for version two, just to like see whether everything uh, works as it's supposed to be working. So, and if you ever yeah. want to jump on a video, I have a YouTube channel where I teach Vue.js every now and then. I could mm-hmm. maybe jump on and and show some of these concepts in a video, or at least be uh, be ready to answer my questions by email. <laughs> okay, uh, I mean, this is kind of like complicated, but I think it should be possible uh, easily to uh, just take the idea and like show it on like more like simple examples and this is something that i was talking like in my recent talk in amsterdam which is about component composition and it doesn't exactly uh, speaks about uh, like renderless components but just like how to create new components out of existing components by like focusing on uh, flexibility so i can uh, send you the the link to the repository and also to the slides, so the repository like uh, shows what, what was part of the live demo. 
That's we, right. You already did some of that in your live demo, right? Yeah. So the idea uh, is that we first create a tooltip component, which just like shows uh, a content on hover. Then we use the tooltip to create a dropdown component. And we have to, because we don't want it to react on hover, so we have to expose some of the control logic from the tooltip, so the opening and closing uh, thing to the uh, true um, the scoped slot to the dropdown component, so it can control the tooltip behavior. And then we are creating a select component on top of the dropdown component. And there, there was an idea to even create a searchable select component out of, out of the select component and an input component. But I think Chris mentioned that uh, it isn't like teaching anything new. It's just like bragging that, hey, you can do it easily. You're just showing off at that point. Yeah, showing off, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it, it is possible and it's very, uh, a very powerful pattern that I think is like, and I think this is like a common problem worth mentioning is that uh, when people like are working with you, they usually start with props. You can do almost everything with props with like a, a given number of props. Like you can configure almost everything with like lots of conditionals and so on. And because they can still solve the problem, the requirement that they have like in their application, they will just go for it. They are not forced to, to look for like alternative approaches. And they, that's why they end up with like, even like buttons, which are like, uh, consider whether like the buttons have like loading states you can like pass uh, like the name of a spinner that you want to use when it's loading you can have different icons replace the icons with stuff and so on and so on. like i've seen this and it's just like crazy whereas the simple solution would be just to drop a default slot and that's it but it requires to roll back on your approach at some point where like just just this like props base uh, approach just doesn't scale so and that's what I, why i wanted to like showcase like how much is possible through the use of sculpt slots maybe it's not like you should yeah. be now only using sculpt slots for like everything because you can go wrong like on the op opposite direction it's good just to find this like sweet spot between like having some props having some slots so that you keep the flexibility high but also you have the like ease of use where you just don't have to like put the content like all the content together and like wire it every time so you just like you have to figure out like how much flexibility you need and how much like configurability you want to have so so it sounds like a big lesson you've learned is that instead of having instead of adding features when you do need to add features inside of props you know, so like having an is loading prop and, you know, like you mentioned a prop for mm -hmm. you know, the name of uh, an icon for a spinner. And then you also have to like import an, an icon library and ship that. <laughs> and then you have to handle use cases for like, oh, what if they want like a different icon library? And then you have to add like icon classes a prop and, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. You instead have people uh, or, or you instead create different components and then use slots like regular slots and scope slots, and then just allow the components to be put together in different ways. And that way you're maintaining a lot of smaller things with very specific roles that are easier to maintain rather than one big thing with like a thousand different things that it can do. And, and like you were saying before, like a thousand different combinations, you know, yep. when, like for each prop, like when you have three props 
and let's say they can have like three different values each, you know, then you're dealing with like already tons of different like use cases that you have to test. And when the, even, even for a string, like the string could be blank, the string could be really long, you know, you have to test for all of these different cases and, you know, what happens when, you know, this string might overflow this button or something like that, or, you know, this string in there might like overflow what's in the input. Like, how do you overflow that? And like, how many, how many different tags do you keep like in the input? <laughs> You're just running with so many different edge cases. Where then you just set more emoji font. There you go. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you just have more props. Like every div that you have in your button, you just said like, this is like this div classes and you just hope that it's enough. Or you just use one slot and just like let the user, uh, like the developer, like put whatever they want. And I, I mean, this should be quite obvious because this is how uh, basically HTML works, right? Well, you just have a button or like a div and you can put like anything you want there. So why why don't we use that? Like this approach where it's like already very flexible. Uh, like if you were to build applications that were only based on props, like you have this button and like, or say a link. And for example, you would like to have like a text plus icon as a link, you would have to use props. Or if you would like to make an image that is a link, you would have like a very specific prop inside this link, as in the unher element where you had to like specify this is an icon, this is the URL for the icon. So like it wouldn't make sense. That's like HTML already teaches us about using slots and why is it good to use so Yeah, that, that's a great point. Like like when you're creating an image, the image element doesn't have, you know, an extra attribute, you know, to add a caption. Like yeah. right right below there. And you know, in another caption to or another like attribute for the caption direction, like whether it's below it's the image or above the image or to the side. Yep, exactly. And, and, that, that's, and, it, and it doesn't have another prop to like give you uh, automatically some kind of tooltip library. I mean, it has like a uh, title so that, you know, when you put your mouse over it, but, you know, it doesn't give you different options for like styling, you know, tooltips and stuff like that. You know, it, it decides for anything more complex, you know, we give you all these tools, all these different elements, and you can put them together and style them however you want to create whatever you want. And that's exactly how I like to view my view components. Like they should have like a very single responsibility. And I mean, it's different when you think about like an open source library, then you kind of have to go like more crazy on it because like people just need it for like tons of use cases. But if you're building your application, then you can just like try to keep those smaller and if you don't need all those configuration apps, so just don't like. It's usually easier to just have uh, like a few smaller components, like put them together, and they will just work. Because you also don't have to worry that much about like breaking changes, like when you want to like change some of the API. Like you can always refactor. Whereas with the um, open source libraries, like you have to somehow keep the API like intact so that like whenever there is an like an new version of release, like some people won't be complaining that like it just like breaks their whole application. So far it, it seems to work for the view multi-select because the major versions are kind of like synced with the view versions. And it's like a complete coincidence, but 
there weren't any like breaking changes because I like I tried to like well not make breakages basically. Oh my god, there isn't like much more to it. So you you take a different approach than if you're building an application for a client or or your employer, you take mm-hmm. a different approach than when you're do creating an API library or a a plugin like like that you're doing. So for example, you talked a lot about components and that how you're making your components more flexible, but like kind of smaller ones using slots instead of passing a bunch of props, which is kind of a bad form, especially you don't want them to do a million things. But if you're building like a whole app, I think sometimes new developers are not sure how much components they should create. Should they take every single button in the application and create a button component out of it so that way they can pass everything into it and make it different colors and do different things and different validations? And should they make their own like every form should be a special component. Should every input be a, a special component? I mean, how do you make the differentiation between how specific you want to make? Or do you just say, oh, I have this one component. It's called forms and it pretty much has all the forms on, on the whole page on it. It's a very good question. Uh, and I think it depends on the project and like how the development process looks like. Like I'm personally a big fan of like just starting simple. So you don't really extract that many components because I usually when I, code i just go with like first the prototype which is like kind of like a very big component and then i look for like pieces that like are repeating somewhere i look for pieces that where it would make sense like for example ex- like this fragment of a template could use its own state like local state and it's like okay this is a good place to extract a component out of it usually this involves like v4 loops like if you have a v4 loop it's there's like a very high chance like you want to have a, like a component inside and just like if you see like you're repeating yourself then like hey this would be my my components like like possible candidates for components and as long as you can get through your component like the big big component like or maybe as long as the most junior person on the team can get through the component then i think it's good good enough but it's also depends on how, like I said, like the development process in the project looks like. If people are allowed to do refactors often, because I'm very strongly believing that refactoring is like, like every time you t- touch a part of your code, of the code, like you should leave it better. And I think Chris said that once to me, but I'm not sure. So you should always try to like leave the code that you've been working on, like in a better state than when you started. It's That's like the I... Smokey the Bear philosophy. Oh, do, do you know what Smokey the Bear is? I've heard no, of Smokey the, boys the Bear told me that on a project that we worked together on. Uh, oh. I pass it on to Damien. <laughs> so yeah, it's this like story that we just like. I'd love to pair program with Smokey. <laughs> I actually don't know what Smokey the Bear is. Uh, um, I, I, that's probably an American thing, right? That's probably like an American thing that people grew up with. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess for those who don't know, yeah, he he's like a advertising icon about the U.S. Forest Service, and, and one of his slogans is to leave like the place you left better off than when when you you left it. Only you can prevent forest fires. <laughs> I, or I, think Joe, it, I think he would say only you can prevent dumpster fires. <laughs> it's kind of an odd thing to say, but anyway, sorry. So, so whenever you're working on code, you always want to create fewer fires than you put out. <laughs> Yeah, but it makes sense. Like, if you start to struggle, then it's like a sign like, yeah, you, this piece of code uh, probably could use some refactoring. Like, I think the same goes for like using Vuex. Like, 
I'm all for like using Vuex, but on the, at the same time, I'm like all for like not putting too much stuff into Vuex until you actually need it. Because usually like managing like local state is easier. And I think Chris, we tend to disagree on this. We had, uh, we've been disagreeing on this like a few times, I think, but yeah, it's just like how I... I, I don't think we, we fundamentally disagree. I, I think there are just like certain cases where yeah. like one of us is, you know, more worried about these future use cases that we won't yeah. be able to accommodate, you know, if we, you know, go down this path or, you know, it'll be more complicated to accommodate later. You know, the kinds of disagreements that any team has and, you know, you yeah. never know who's right until, you know, you see how the app develops. Yeah, that, that's exactly how you say, like, sometimes you should, should like probably like move something to Vuex, even if you don't really need it right now, if you know how the application will, like like what will be the next requirements, you could already like accommodate for, for, for those requirements, like just like set the ground ready for, for it. Well, my recommendation would be just to go this direction if you are like certain that this, those requirements will show up in like a relative, uh, in a short span, like in, in the coming future future and not to like overthink some things and i'm not saying like you were overthinking it because it turned out to be you were right no no i, I think i i see I, I see what you're saying and i i'd like to i'd like to circle back speaking of circles uh oh. and talk about something that you said that again i i really really liked you mentioned not breaking components out into multiple components until they start to feel complex and also like feel complex to your most junior developers because you don't want parts of the app that only some people can work on. Oh yeah, like I'm. I mean, it sounds funny. Like it was hard to write. It should be hard to read or understand. But uh, I don't really. <laughs> I don't believe it's supposed like how you're supposed to build applications. So if in your team, like if everyone is comfortable with the how it the application looks like, like truly comfortable, and not like I'm just saying it, I'm comfortable because I don't want to look like noob, then. I think it's all right. I have a question though. Like, what's the danger of breaking things out into components too early? Mm, probably taking, uh, like, creating the wrong abstractions. Because if it's still like relatively simple, then you're not like improving the everything like that much, like in a in a way that makes like tons of difference. Whereas you might end up with uh, something that will be less flexible in the future when like new requirements come. And because you already extracted something into like a new component or like a set of components, you might like try to accommodate, like fill the new requirements with what, what you already have. Whereas it might not be suited for that. And then you have to like refactor everything into, um, so that it, it fits the new requirements. Whereas if you were to wait a bit, for the new requirements, then you maybe you would just go in like a completely different direction from uh, once you, once you start like oh this is getting complex with those new requirements we have to abstract it and because you know more than you uh, knew like uh, two months ago when you first created this fragment of the code you'll be uh, like making the right decisions on how to break it up into smaller pieces. Does it make sense? When I was learning yeah. agile development, the way that I had this explained to me was that you will never know as little as you know right now. So, you know, if you wait as long as you can without causing yourself too much pain before you make these kinds of changes, then you can make the best decision possible at the optimal time. 
Very well said. So procrastinating is always better. Yeah. I knew there was a reason I procrastinated. Until it's not, yes. (laughs) Yeah, until it's not. (laughs) Until it's not? (laughs) Whoa, procrastinating is always better until it's not. Hey, I know we only have a few minutes left. I just want one more question for Damien. On the Vue.js, news.vue.js.org, can you explain that, what what you're trying to do there? And I didn't even know you guys had a podcast. Or maybe I did and I forgot. Um, So basically it started, oh my God, like... Two and a half years ago, uh, I think we had like uh, 130 issues. So each week, I think we skipped a few uh, weeks, like when like Christmas time and like, I don't really have the time to do it right now. And I hope people won't notice uh, kind of situations and they didn't. So that's good. Uh, or maybe they did, just they didn't uh, like write it to me. So the idea is to just like get through the latest news, like whatever, like new articles, um, new tutorials, uh, but also like uh, even tweets like from the community where there is something like interesting happening. And this also includes uh, most of the, like hopefully almost everything that happens within the core team. So for example, if you don't have the time to follow on Twitter uh, and so on, then like, this is probably uh, the best way to just like be up to date, like on a weekly basis on what is happening. Like, hey, there's like a say security issue. So like update your version of the libraries that you are using or hey, there is like a, this new feature coming uh, or this better version that you can try. Um, How do you get, like if I write a kick butt article on some view piece of information or video, how do I get that to you guys to, to maybe be okay. on the news? So there is this submit button on the, on the page uh, where the, it basically uh, opens like embeds and uh, Google form inside. So you can provide the, like your email, uh, the title and the link to the resource. And we are like going through those uh, resources like each week, but also like through other sources or so, like uh, Facebook groups that, exist on uh, Facebook or Twitter. Like if you are using the hash uh, Vue.js Twitter. Um, cool. So, I mean, not always, but I try to like dig through like everything that like was happening like last uh, week and also things that just people sent uh, my way. Also things that show up on the official Discord, which is chat.vuejs.org, where there is the channel, like I made this. So... I've been like looking through all the resources and just trying to pick the best of those and like make it into a newsletter. And Greg and Adam from the View Mastery team then try to discuss it in like a short five minutes or like three minutes long podcast where they just like go through all the resources and just like explain what it is about. And like if someone is interested in those, they can just like go to the website and go from there and read those articles in full or like watch some presentations or videos uh, because we also try to publish like uh, slides from recent conferences or, or videos if, if there are or oh, if cool. those are published. Yeah, I just did a video on Vue 2.6, the new v, the new vSlot stuff, and I didn't even realize I could submit it to somewhere like this. Well, I mean, you can, and actually some... I haven't yet published the, the this week's newsletter. Okay. So if you send it my way, in the next 10 minutes, I mean, I will have to watch it just to, but I'm pretty sure it's good. 
<laughs> you know, I, I want to do a better one, actually. Maybe I'll do it, not this week, but maybe in a week or two. I'll, I'll okay, you can send nice. some of the other stuff, but I think we already published some of those. I can't remember because it's just like so much content that is produced like each week. It's just very hard to, uh, like usually it's just like read and then like, is it good? Yes, no, and then forget. <laughs> Unless it's something that is very, uh, like something that I didn't know. Then I try to like learn from it because, and I learn a lot from like other people that's just uh, producing the content that is then uh, sent through the newsletters. I'm very, very helpful that, like, grateful that the community is so big at, uh, at this time that it's, it's not a problem to find the, the content. It's a problem to get through all the content and figure what's uh, like, what's new, what wasn't like, uh, because some of the articles are already something that was published or very similar. So we try to not publish like every introduction to view, which like <laughs> pops every every month, month, like there's a new introduction to view mm-hmm. article, unless it's like very good and we just like periodically share those. Nice. Well, I'm going to push us to picks because I have to jump off in 10. Before we do that though, Damien, where do people find you online? Okay, so uh, I'm mostly on Twitter, although I don't really tweet that often. It's um, at Damien Dulish, which uh, I, don't, I don't know whether it helps when I say it, but I think we can publish the Twitter link on the, on the Views on View page. Uh, yes, so, definitely. Just put it in the chat and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. And on GitHub under the nickname Shentao, which is my old gaming nickname, which I hope at this point I should change, but it would break uh, some of the links to the... Uh, Library. Yeah, don't break the internet. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also my website, like dulish.com, which, well, it only links to Twitter and my, like, buy me a coffee page where you can buy me a coffee <laughs> if you want. I like coffee. Like, I love coffee. Oh, my God. Very cool. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com view. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. All right, well, let's do some picks. Eric, you got some picks yeah. for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, so just from looking at the news Vue.js website, I just saw this awesome article. I think I saw this before. It's What Hooks Mean for You by our favorite oh, yeah. author, Sarah Drasner. And uh, she, yeah, it looks like a pretty great article. Hooks is being... It is great. Yeah, a lot of people are talking about hooks in the React world. So it's good to have a comparison in the Vue world and what it means for us. So I would highly recommend checking that out. And also I'd love to... Just a quick shout out for myself. If you guys have listened to some of these topics, for the super fans who are still listening at this point, I really appreciate it. Can you guys tweet me at ericch, E-R-I-K-C-H, and just let me know if there's like a topic that we talked about today 
or in a previous episode that you want a, like more explanation on, I do a lot of YouTube videos and I'd love to have some feedback on what my next Vue.js YouTube video should be. And that's at eric.video. So if you guys just want to tweet me at ericch, that'd be awesome. And let me know if you guys are super fans and still listening. Awesome. Yeah, I think we've done like 8 million episodes on React Roundup on Hooks because it got announced at React Conference. <laughs> yeah, anyway. So yeah, definitely nice to have a comparison when you're talking to your friends that do web but don't do it the way you do it. Uh, Chris, do you have some picks for us? I do. My first pick is uh, something that came out on Netflix recently called Umbrella <laughs> Academy. And it's oh. based off of a, a comic that... I read Once Upon a Time. I never finished it because I basically just like ran out of my comic budget. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did enjoy it. Uh, it was fun. It is a little bit violent though. So for people who are sensitive to that, just just be a little bit careful. Plus uh, one for me on else. that. I watched the first few episodes. It was great. Oh yeah, good, good. good. Glad to hear you're yep. enjoying it. I've been also watching it like probably the first four episodes. And so far it's quite good. Although I have this uh, problem, which is kind of like an anti-pick, where if you enjoy a show, don't go to like Wikipedia or any Wikia page and read the whole story, because then you kind of like screw yourself from the enjoyment of like watching the rest of the episodes where I ended up, and I end up there like quite often. Oh, self-reflection. Yeah, just don't go to wiki page of anything that you enjoy because then you just read everything and just don't enjoy the thing anymore that much. <laughs> you you might run across an episode title that's like John dies or something. Um, yeah, did, maybe. Did they actually spell out the whole story? That's interesting. You, you know what? That, that actually that actually happened to me once. Oh no! I was looking for when the next season of something came out, and I typed in the name of the show. I can't remember what show this was exactly. But I was typing in the name of the show, and then Google Autocomplete told me, like, like the name of the show, blank dies. <laughs> so you have to be so careful. <laughs> there were there were spoilers in the autocomplete. Uh, unless someone just like made those queries so that yes, they so like looked yeah. legit, so Google will autocomplete it. But the twist is, he doesn't die. So don't even look at when the next season is going to come out until you've like watched completely the previous season. That's the lesson here. Like hire someone to use the internet for you to to do the searches and only search the information oh, that go. you want. I'm going to open up a shop, a service, boilerfree.com or something. I don't know. <laughs> All right, I'm going to throw in a couple of picks. So I just Wait, I do have one last pick. I have one. Oh last oh pick. oh, sorry sorry sorry. Don't hurt me. So my, my last pick is uh, uh refactor tech. And the, the tagline is, uh, it's a conference. It's called, uh, the tagline is Diversity, Inclusion, Tech. And it's something I'm really excited about because it, it's going to cover a lot of topics that we don't usually like get to, get to cover, except in like one-on-one -on -one conversations between open source maintainers and, and other people in the community. And I just found out, uh, I'll be talking about building documentation that is, that is cross-cultural and, and really like reaches, reaches everybody. Because when, when we write docs in English, like they really are for the entire world, no matter what kind of culture they're coming from, no matter what experience they're coming from, uh, and how to take that into account. And it's something I'm, I'm personally passionate about, and I'm excited I'll get to geek out about it with some, some other people who like geeking out about this stuff. And I am sure I will get to learn a lot of new things. Awesome. Where is the conference? As in location, the US or 
I think it's in Atlanta. Yes, it is in uh, Atlanta. That's far away. Like so far away. Sorry. But it no, does no. sound good. Like I would love to go there uh, if it just was like a bit closer. Like, I don't know, like Germany. Or... Yeah. And that's, that's in June. So you have plenty of time to sign up for it. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. I, I might consider it. All right, now I'm going to throw out a couple of picks. So the first pick that I have, I've been listening to a book, which is no surprise here, folks. The book is The Effective Executive. And this is a book that I really recommend to everybody. It's a management book. It's by Peter Drucker. It's 50 years old. But it talks a lot about just being effective with your time and managing yourself and managing others. And anyway, I I feel like there's enough advice in there in general that everybody could use. So I'm going to recommend that. And then on JavaScript Jabber and Ruby Rogues, I had a friend of mine named Manny Vea come on and talk about productivity. And both of those conversations were excellent. And I believe that the JavaScript Jabber episode comes out April 9th. And I think this episode comes out around the same time. So definitely check those out. Good, good stuff. Then I think I also have a pick. Yeah. When it comes to books, although I ha- still haven't read it, I tried to get my hands on it, uh, but I've seen a very favorable uh, review and the book is Work Clean by Dan Charnas. I'm not sure how, if I pronounce it right. And it's about uh, like productivity and how the like chefs, chefs of like the biggest restaurants are like following the missing place. Uh, it's a French like sentence, which is kind of like everything... Uh, in the right place and how it affects like your workflow. Um, and apparently it's like very helpful for like uh, also for developers and like basically anyone that has to do something and don't want to procrastinate too much. I think like I want to read it very, very much. And uh, if you're into productivity and would like to probably improve your workflow, then this might be a very nice place to start because uh, like one of the things that I learned is that whenever, uh, like from the, the tips, I think, uh, is that first you only do one thing at a time. So like no multitasking. Then but before you start, you have to prepare everything. Like every ingredient has to be ready on your like desk. Uh, so you don't have to think about it. And then you need like for everything that you do, you need a recipe that you can follow. So probably like a written down like list of tasks and it has to be uh, in order and not just like a random list, uh, like a random or the unordered list of tasks. Yeah. So those were like things that I've seen into review. And I think maybe it kind of like sums the whole book so you don't have to read, but I would still try to read the book and see whether there is more. And I'm pretty sure there is. So, oh yeah, that, that was my pick. Very cool. Yeah, a lot of those are similar to the strategies in... Uh the effective executive. So definitely check that out. Yeah. Anyway, it's really interesting to see that. Yeah. Industries pick up the same kinds of tips and tools and things like that and, and push ahead the same kinds of things. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up, but thank you for coming, Damien. That was a fun Thank you for inviting me. And thanks Uh, to our panel. Thank you, Chuck. All right, folks, we will wrap this up. We will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.